Well, I'm going to talk about Django and Google App Engine, and this is going to be an introductory talk to show you how they do and do not fit together, and then we'll have a small um, overview of what um, App Engine is. How many people have programmed with Django? I assume since you're here, it's going to be most of you. Okay, good. How many people have programmed, not just looked at App Engine? Okay. So, first, what is Google App Engine? It's a layer of abstraction between a web interface, which in this case will be Django, there's also a web app framework which comes with App Engine, and Bigtable, which is the major data store which is used at Google. And gives you all the benefits of Google's network, of the speed, um, the redundancy, the scalability. And it, <coughs> excuse me, App Engine defines the API of how you access Bigtable itself, because normally it's done with C routines inside of Google, and then you decide what you want to do with it. Now, App Engine, why do you want to use it? Because it's read-optimized. If you have an application which is not read-optimized, this may not be the tool for you. It's also highly redundant without any work on your part. Um, each time that you do a search on Google search itself, there are three copies at least of this going on in different tablet servers that are geographically diverse. So if one crashes, there are always two others that can take it up. Um, and that's built into App Engine. And it gives you access to the same data store, um, this used for Google search, sub-pub-hub-bub, pub-sub-hub-bub um, pub it should be. How many people have seen that and used it? Or I know Justin has. If you haven't, look it up. It's a Brad Fitzpatrick, uh, Brett Slatkin project, and it is super cool. Um, Google Analytics, AdWords, etc. Now, one of the premises is writes are expensive, and reads are incredibly cheap. Now, Bigtable caches all your reads, so chances are that when you're reading, you may not actually be reading from disk unless you have a large entity group. So Bigtable averages 100 writes per second, 4,000 reads per second. And the re part of that reason is reads are not transactional, and all writes are heavily transactional within entity groups, and I'll explain that later. Um, so it's 40 times as expensive um, as a read to write. So this is what you're thinking about. If your project needs to have a lot of real-time updating, which needs to be posted so it's read consistent, again, it may not be for you. This is why not to use it. You don't program in Python or Java. You're lost because these are the only interfaces that they have at the moment. You absolutely want a relational model. And one of the reasons may be that you work in a large corporation, they won't let you use anything else. Um, you want physical controls over your own machines. Because when you're doing this, this is out in the cloud. This is in Google's network. You have security concerns. Um, you want to use the Django R ORM. This is one of the big duchess with Bigtable and Django. You can't use the Django ORM because it's based upon a relational model. And you favor writes over reads. Okay. What you can do with the Django stuff is you have all the forms. You have templates. You have unit tests and their fixtures. You have the dev server, which will operate just the way you're used to in Django, but there's a, we'll show you with the Django helper, what you're actually doing is running the dev server for Google App Engine. But it will look the same to you. Um, it also has support for Django memcache and the backend module, which is really nice because I didn't have that at first, and support for the DB and cache session backend modules. So this is what you can do if you want to use Django with the App Engine. You can use most of the managed PY commands. And there are a couple of others if you look at the documentation, like vacuum when you want to clear out the data store. Um, rollback, uh, update that are specific to App Engine. And let's see, base, oh, the base model class is what replaces that. There are two model classes in App Engine primarily. There are actually three, but two primary ones. And here you'll be using base model. There's one called Expando, which always sounds like something from a 1940 science fiction <laughs> film. 
Um, and that's really weird, and if you haven't used it, just stay away from it. Um, so the base model class for you is going to look the same as the Django model class. And um, yeah, and that's nice if you want to use YAML. It has a YAML file, um, XML. Oh, that should be JSON, but that got cut off quickly while I was doing it. Um, you have the ability to send email via the app engine. You want to send out 10 gazillion emails, you can do it out through there. Standard, um, it looks just like Django to you. Um, Ah, here's the other big gotcha. No groups or permission support. User support, no groups or permissions. Um, uh, that's a duplicate of what we had before, which you cannot do. The admin module is not going to work for you because it's based upon a relational model in the background. And again, I say only the users and no groups and permissions because a lot of people will say, oh, I can get that to work in some way. And the ORM, the question is, hasn't somebody thought how to make this work with a non-relational? Um, when I was out at Google I.O. last year, I spoke to Guido about it. He had actually spent a lot of time trying to figure out how he could get this to work with App Engine and finally just gave up on it. It's not that just this is non-relational. It's so unlike the relational model that Django is based upon. He and uh, two of the other engineers just said, it's not worth it. Okay, so at this point, we'll assume that you have installed the Django helper, which we'll get to afterwards so you can see how this fits in. So this is a basic bookstore thing, which is in half the Django books, as an example. So the two lines at the top are the two lines that are specific. You can see it's very similar to what you see, but you have to import the base model, because what looks like the Django model is actually the base model for the non-relational database and App Engine. So it's just these two lines, and you're pretty good. Except when you get into the view, you import the DB. But if you look at the rest of it, it looks just like regular Django code. Templates, that's one of the great things. They have, as I said, the web app framework comes with Google App Engine, which is like a mini Django. And they looked at a lot of templating languages. They ended up using the Django template language. So anything you want to do with Django, you can do in the templates there. And the forms, these are the two import statements you need. Pretty much they're going to work the way they do in Django. And that's about it. Those are the only difference you had. Now, does that sound easy? Except you've got to understand this. How many people here use non-relational databases on a regular basis? Not a whole lot. How many people use relational on a regular basis? So Django is based upon relational. What is Bigtable? Because there's, there's Cassandra, there's MongoDB, CouchDB. There's a whole bunch of them out there. Bigtable is a sparse, distributed, persistent, multi-dimensional sorted map. It's not um, a sharded hash table as it's sometimes described. What this means is it's a large key value store with absolutely no referential integrity built into it. So if you want referential integrity, you're going to have to put it into your code. Now, each one of these is a map. And each map has a row name which uniquely identifies it. It's a, very, it's a relatively com complex structure which is brought down to a protocol buffer. Which is, uh, which is now open source, and Google uses it to compress virtually everything that they do on their network. And each value in the map is an uninterrupted array of bytes. Even if you're storing an integer or float, they're storing it as a string, and then they only convert it when you read it. Now, each row has, the, has a row name on which the data is sorted. Now, I'll show you this in a picture later. But it can be sharded across multiple physical machines, but the order is maintained. So let's say you have this 
huge table, there's a million entries. It may be across n servers, but the order is always maintained. And the really cool part that they don't usually tell you, I was talking to Ryan Barrett, who's one of the guys that worked on this. Part of the reason the writes are so expensive is when they write to the Google file system, let's say you're inserting a record, you have A and you have M here and you're putting D in there. They know physically where these are on each sector on the disk. So when they do it, they insert it physically inside and move the other things around so all your data is physically contiguous on the disk. So when they go for a read of 64 megabytes at one time, there's no sorting. They can just scan in memory because everything is physically contiguous already. And how do they do that? They rewrote the Linux kernel, or they modified the Linux kernel. They have their own Google file system. And I did another presentation two months ago exactly how all this works. But it's incredibly fast and efficient so that it's like um, zero of one when they go for a search. Because not only do they have to see where the data is around, they know where it is from the index, but they know physically where it is. So it's one disk seek, and the rest of it's in memory. Now, every individual rows and the relationships, the, row, the data in the rows themselves are actually referred to as entities. Now, entities are that name value pair. So we'll say name, and then after that, you have what are called properties. Properties can be anything. There can be, in the same kind, let's say you have a book kind. You may have in one entity five properties, and the next one you may only have two. It's not like two-dimensional, <coughs> pardon me, a relational database where you have a field that exists and it's null, perhaps, it simply does not exist on some of the records if you don't want to. Um, so again, keep emphasizing it's not relational. Um, they don't have to have the same number of columns, which are the properties. And you can, there's nothing built in with the idea of foreign keys. There are things that you can do in your code so you can create one to many and many to one, but the data store does not enforce that schema. This is a flat key value table. Any schema that you come up with, you have to enforce in the code yourself. Okay, okay it's a zero one lookup. Um, queries, we'll go over them very uh, quickly when we see it because they don't use SQL. They use GQL, which is the Google query language. It's a subset of SQL but a very, very small subset. Like there are no inequality operators, for example, in it. You have to do a less than, equal to, greater than, equal to, to find out what you want in between. And the reason they do that is because submitting those types of queries, the way they do their indexes, is incredibly fast for retrieving data. Um, and the keys are limited to 500 bytes. Okay. It may seem small, in some cases it might be a limitation, but Google's running their entire infrastructure and they haven't run into it as a limitation, which is why they haven't increased it since, I think, 2004, 2005. Okay, here's an example of an entity group, a very small one, and how it would be stored. Let's see, can you see it? Melinda is the matriarch of this family. Melinda has two children, Liam and Ethel. Um, oh, sorry. Ethel should be on top of Liam because it's alphabetically sorted. I'm sorry, I did this too quickly. But you'll see, she has the two children. And then Liam has, two, has the children Finbar, Carl, and Moira. And Ethel has Iman, Sean. And then Iman has two children, Elmo and Finbar, which is a different Finbar than the Finbar up here. It's a Celtic family. So this entire thing is called an entity group. And each one of these is an individual row 
and these are the keys at the beginning of the row, and after that you can have all sorts of properties on it. And the reason I show you the entity group is that when you're doing writes, writes are in transactions. If you're doing a transaction on Melinda Ethel Sean, you are locking, not, and I'll explain very quickly what locking is, the entire entity group. Because all reads are done sequentially, and there's a very complex process with journals and then do commits. This is something interesting in uh, App Engine or Big Table. When you commit something, it's not written to disk. Doesn't mean it's written to disk. It means it's put in a queue to be written to disk. The application is only when it's written to disk. But if I say I want to add something to Sean as a property, this entire thing will be locked. That means that if you want to make any other changes, so this ent the entire entity group, you have to get in the queue after I've made the change to Sean, then you can make your application. That's what they mean by locking. So if you were making a change to Melinda Liam, and I'm making it down here to Sean, you would still have to wait behind me because it's part of the same entity group. Now this happens at lightning speed, but if you have a ton of transactions behind each other, be aware of that. This is probably more than you need to know, so if you have questions about it, talk to me afterwards. Um, things to know are entity groups are always hierarchical. And a root node, which was Ethel in our last case, defines <coughs> what the entity group is. Now, each entity group may have a parent. For example, Ethel could have actually been under somebody else. Because there are queries that you can do, say, give me all the ancestors of someone else, which would be the people that are up in the hierarchy of the key value structure. Um, transaction. Yeah, there's no, no limit on the number of entity groups that can be transacted. Now, one of the principles to look at in this is that in the COD date model, which is, God, I think it's 31 years old this year, you're looking for five levels of normalization. There are relatively strict rules about what you should do for normalization, though we all know that when it reaches a certain size, it starts to fall apart because then you have to think about performance, et cetera. But what you may want to do is you may want to because it fits the relational structure, put this much in a table. But you want to start thinking with App Engine. Because you want to model your data the way it works, but you want to start thinking about smaller entity groups. Because if you have huge entity groups, like a large table on a relational model, make changes as uh, uh, writes or deletes, the, um, or updates, deletes, or creation, then you have locked that entire group, and everybody's lining up behind you to sequentially make their um, commits. So start thinking about, could I put them in smaller groups? Don't think they're necessarily related the way they are in a, in a table. Because um, not thinking about rights will sink you. That's guaranteed. Um, the good stuff is that queries are guaranteed to always be read consistent. Um, you're never going to see uh, a line with a property that's partially committed. If you have a transaction for creation, an update, or deletion, it either succeeds or it doesn't. And there are numerous retries, et cetera, and if it fails, you get an exception back. But the database is guaranteed to be read consistent. Though, I will tell you, there is one theoretical place where for a nanosecond or so, it would not be read consistent. Um, I haven't seen it happen, but I can point you to a paper by Jeff Scudder, which puts it into great detail that it's a theoretical way that it could happen. So. For all practical purposes, consider it read consistent. Now, the queries, what type of queries do you have? When you start in Django, when you have the book, or you have a person, these are called kinds in App Engine. So you're always going to look, each row has a kind associated with it, okay? And 
Each kind has the properties, which are the fields that you have defined in Django. And then there are sort orders. There's a whole lot of indexing which automatically goes on in App Engine. That's why you don't have to create a lot of the indexes. And one of the things that's really cool about the dev server is you're running your tests, and you've got your um, data down here in the disk. It analyzes what you are doing, and then will put in probably 95% of the time all the indexes that you will need to use when you actually deploy it. So when you deploy the application of the App Engine, which is really just typing the name of one script, it's kept track of your usage pattern and will tell App Engine what uh, indexes need to be created immediately. Um, ancestors, we don't want to go with it. Again, talk to me if you really are interested in it. Ah, people are thinking, well, this is quick. What if I load a bunch of stuff into memory and start trying to scan it myself? It will be slower because Bigtable has been so optimized to use this as a data store. You're faster if you use the data store. Structure your data for small queries if you can because Again, this is a little bit like a RESTful interface. You want small transactions, and maybe numerous ones of them, but you should also make them stateless if you can. That's the way you're going to get the uh, most bang for the buck. And use memcached when you can. Um, here's an example of queries in GQL. You'll, you'll notice that they look very much like SQL. You can say a lot of the same things, but you know, here's an example of what would be, there's a group, okay? And this is an ancestor. But this is the important part to realize. Under the hood, they're all scans. Chunking those entity groups in, and they're scanning it in memory, possibly over multiple servers. Single property index, I put this in. It's, um, here's an example of an inequality. You don't say when it's not equal to this, it's greater than that greater than or equal to B and less than C, which means you're looking for what? B. Again, talk, I, I put some of this in, but again, talk to me if you have more, more questions on it. So you start to see that you want to come up with small groups, which are closely and hierarchically related, and you want to have small, uh, frequent queries that are made. And then you can have composite indexes on more than one property. These are the indexes that you have to define yourself um, and you define them in your app YAML file, which is very much like, like Python. And when you upload it, if the dev server hasn't figured out what you want, it reads it and creates it for you. Um, entity groups and transactions is the complicated part. And I say come to the GTUG because next week I'm giving a fairly long presentation on how to specifically structure and how your data and how you should think about what your queries are going to be before you actually structure your data and how those will fit into entity groups and transactions. Okay, right now we have the, there's the Java and the Python SDK. I'm skipping over the Java one because I pity the guys that had to write that. Java Persistence API is, they have two of them and neither one of them really works that well. Um, the guys that work on this also tend to like Python a lot, so this is really optimized for Python. Um, this just came out a couple of weeks ago. Data score query curses, I haven't played with it yet, um, but that was a, a big thing they've been working on for a year and a half. It used to be with any request, you had a limit of 1,000 results coming back because Google wrote this to use their um, indexing for the Google search. We go, okay, give me 1,000 back, and while the guy's doing it, I'll go out and get 1,000 more and put it in. But now that some of the applications that get in here, for example, salesforce.com has something called force.com, uh, which tracks sales and contracts for large corporations. That's all run in Google App Engine. So for the larger applications like that, it started to be a problem, so they have now removed the 1,000 result limit. 
This one. Oh, boy, you used to, remember how I said if you lock a large entity group, things will get put into a queue to be sequentially done? There's X number of times it will try, and it will come back and give you an exception, say I couldn't complete it. And it's usually because of, of a type of timeout, which is very, very small. They have now put it in where it will, if it can't reach the big table table at the time, it will automatically retry for you, basically, until um, it succeeds. And uh, this is a huge change, because even the people that use big table itself still have to deal with this. This is something which is on the abstraction layer. This just came out a couple of days ago. Um, I haven't even played with it yet because it's still unstable. Oh, and I should make a point of 1.31. I was working with it and I found a bug. I didn't have time to put it in the slides, but it, it's on my blog how to get around it because you have certain situations, you're loading it in, you're going to get import errors. So I traced it down and there's a fix. Um, again, you can talk to me or look at uh, bobhancock.blogspot.com and tell you what to do. Um, oh, so this is uh, also the things, crons and task queues, which are associated with it. We all know what a cron is, just like a cron tab in uh, Unix. A task queue is saying, here's some stuff I want to do, but I don't necessarily want it done at a certain time. But when you have time, do it for me. It might be that you want to load a lot of data in. And also today, um, Nick, and I forget his last name, uh, released, released a bulk loader application. That's been a big problem with uh, App Engine bulk operations because, as I said, it's, it's based upon small things. He now has an application which will allow you to do um, large bulk store operations and loading of blobs. And a bunch of bug fixes. Now we come to the Django helper. Uh, I saw Guido give a talk about two years ago when this was first starting, and he had figured out what you had to do to get Django to work with App Engine. And he ran through it like it was a 100 meter race. You got to do this, then you put it over here, you change this, and you go over here, and then you do that, and then it works fine, right? Nobody understood what he said. So these guys ended up completing it. You go to the Django helper. All you do is you download it, and I have six steps that you go through to copy it over, and you get everything that you can do with Django and App Engine. It's going to look like everything that I've just shown you. Um, some of this is repetitive. This is the URL. When Sean posts the slides, you'll be able to go in and you click on it. If you want to look at it, these are the six steps to installing the Django Helper. These are just installations. There are two or three ways you can do it. I found that this is the most efficient to do it, and it's worked every time. Um, the caveat is that I do it only under Linux. I, I just never use Windows. So when you have things like you want to create a symbolic link or the zip file underneath with the symbolic link, I'm not sure how that will work in Windows. And then you just uh, start the application. Here are some of the resources. This is the first good book that's been written on App Engine by Dan Sanderson, who works in the Seattle office of Google. And first, the GTUG is going to be part of your auction tonight. Um, the code.google.com, they're constantly putting up uh, new articles about it. There's uh, people to look for, like Ryan Barrett, Rafe Kaplan, and Jeff Scudder. They've written some very, very good articles. There's a whole series on understanding the data store if you don't want to go down to the level of the GFS and Bigtable. How much will it cost? It's still pretty cheap. You get 10 applications that you can put up for free and actually a whole bunch of time. You're not really going to start incurring uh, much cost if, unless you have an incredibly successful application. If you do, it's still a very small cost, but the costs are changing all the time. So always check out this link. NYC GTUG, I'm a co-manager of that group, the Google Technology User Group. You can see it on Meetup. Um, I've been doing a series called Under the Hood, which are the details, like how Bigtable and the Google file system work, um, what is the, the actual life of a transaction in the Google App, App Engine, really nitty-gritty stuff. Um, the Google Group for App Engine, 
on Google Groups is incredibly active, and they now have split it up into one specifically for Python and to Java. The Python one is, in, is very, very active. If you think you want to do something and you're not sure, somebody, I guarantee, has already done it to find out why it does or doesn't work. And uh, App Engine Community is online. And are there any questions? Yeah, first of all, I didn't understand the part about uh, the ORM is not supported, and maybe it's just a terminology issue. I saw the uh, something class got objects. Uh, right, so it looks like you can create your schema with it, but all the things that you do for doing queries and filters and stuff. Right. And what's the replacement for that? What's the query? You have to write in GQL. Yourself. The other question is, is there any special support for RDF? Any what? Special support for RDF. What is RDF? I don't know. Uh, triplets for semantic processing. Just this is it. The non-relational model. No, I mean, for other non-relational databases? Well, it's a specific type of non-relational database. Okay. This, is, this was just about the app engine specifically <coughs> itself. Because um, I get, which is a way of getting into Bigtable. The other ones, there is a um, project called Non-Relational Django, and uh, they have their own group. I haven't read about it very much. It, I think the idea is to try to make Django work with quote all non-relational databases, and I wish them luck. And it would be great if they can do it. What are the limitations on sending email? Meaning, as in volume. Um, you're not limited by email for the last pricing I looked at you do have a limit on memory storage and CPU usage. And the storage and memory are really very, very generous. The CPU, if you don't write it correctly, is really good hung on if you're sending I'm planning on building one of the pockets and working on this email and based Several million a day? Several hundred thousand a day. You should look at the current pricing because I, I don't think it's going to hit you that hard. Because one of the things I know that um, on the mail API, if you build it up into like a task queue or transaction, it will basically send them out in parallel. Oh, another thing too, if you, uh, this is tied to Python 2.5 at the moment. They haven't moved it up to 2.6 yet. Um, and you can't use the parts of Python which are like threading and multi processing because they're doing it underneath. But if you have specifically for mail or URL fetch, which is another part, um, if you have a bunch of them together, App Engine will know enough to put it into individual threads and do it almost concurrently. Um, you have to pay for email? No, it's not for email, for uh, CPU usage, disk usage, etc. Um, you said something about um, the indexes um, this being generated at the time that you're developing. What if you don't do a good job of development and then you do something, there are certain situations with GQL that you need certain types of composite indexes, you get back index exception. And we'll tell you, say, oh, it's index. I need this sort of index, you then have to create it. So you, you go back to dev and then? No, you don't have to go back to dev. You can just issue it online. So it, it's, it's not a failure. It's just one, it's, is that one of the warning situations? No, it, it is a failure. Because it will say, I can't process this query because the right indices are not in place. And it was an index exception, blah, 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 blah. He said, oh, well, if I see that, I have to create it before I write it. You didn't even put that into your code. <coughs> if I get index exception, we can parse it and let me automatically make it. That's, you should only have to make the index once because they're, uh, they're constantly maintained. Um, another thing is uh, non-composite indexes, the standard ones. Every time you write a record, there's <coughs> a um, index which is written which is both ascending and descending for every property in, in your row. Those are automatically generated. They're actually stored at the end of the table.
Do you have any thoughts on using this verse Amazon web services? That's like talking about religion. <laughs> Seriously? Uh, this versus Amazon? I said it's a little bit like talking about religion. Um, they both have pluses and minuses. This is more read optimized and has a better throughput for reads than the Amazon does. Right. Yeah, this is this is free for ten applications on reasonable volume. It's also apparently higher up on the API than the So you don't have to worry about the operating system that's running on Apple while you do on Amazon. There's a lot of things you do on Amazon. That, that's true. It sounds like it goes back to a balancing. Yeah, you don't need to worry about that. No, that's all the way. That's all taken care of. Yeah, yeah. But you may have other things with it that you want. That's right. why. If you need yeah. a low level stuff, then you have to go and do it. But if you don't need it anymore, it's not like you can't like, just go that right. And you may want Cassandra. Right. might be a better choice for all of us. I mean, Twitter just made that choice last week. For, there's no multi-processing or, or, or threading. Is there for, for long-running processes? Is there, like, there are no long-running processes because they'll kick you off. OK, so you can't drop out like a sub-process for anything? Nope. Like that. Well, these are all flat files. Everything on here is a flat file. It's just that your data is in a key value <coughs> thing, but it literally flat files on disk. So if you wanted to create a flat file which didn't have any real um, uh, hierarchy to it, what you would have, as far as they're concerned, is a bunch of, let's say you have 10 lines, which you just wrote of text with properties on it. That would be 10 entity groups that only have a root level added. And how does like the main transfer, I'm not really clear, like if it's low balancing automatically. What's the use of main transferring on that one? Um, well, this gets into how um, the journal works on Bigtable. Memcache is a direction to say, listen, I want to keep this stuff in memory because I know in my code I'm going to grab this again in two seconds. Right. <coughs> Forget about load balancing because it doesn't really do load balancing the way that we know it. Yeah, that was how you it doesn't, it doesn't do that at all because the tables themselves are actually broken down to what are called tablets over multiple machines with a master. It's, it, it's, I'm not avoiding the question, but it doesn't apply unless you understand how that works with the file system. And the, part of this is don't worry about that because they've spent 10 years, like Jeff Dean and Sanjay Gemawad, with really smart people getting it to work. Because think about when you do a, a Google query, how quickly it comes back. And they use this for all their one of the Cool applications they have. They build their own. They have their own PCs built for them, and they have monitoring down individual components of the motherboard and the disk, etc. They're constantly collecting information about the health of all their commodity PCs that they use. And about three, four months ago, and they get reports on them every day. They started to see that some PCs were slower in this one data center in one section. They ran another report. Found they all came from the manufacturing um, vat, and they all had the same defect in the motherboard. So they just sent the guys over, they ripped them off of the Velcro stands and put them back in, and that was it. They sent them right back. So they constantly know what any PC is like anywhere in the network. Do you know of any way to interface with the uh, GQL, the, the, the Big Table data store outside of the um, application, or 
to read from another resource other than the big data that is going, except for the URL. Like, let's say you want to do some batch processing in the background and have your web application access that. Access, access what? I mean, you want to do back, background back applications on accessing no, app engine? No, you want to have um, processing. You don't want to have some sort of, you know, perhaps asynchronous uh, processing done that your app can then access later on. Like, let's say something takes a really long time to compute, but you want to serve it um, to the web. Is there any way of doing that? Oh, here? Um, if, it's a, if it's a long one to compute, if it's too long? Not synchronous. Something you can't do synchronously. Something you can't just initiate on, on request. Oh, so, so it's a bunch of asynchronous requests coming up to a final result? Yeah. Like, let's say you, you would put them into the transaction queues. And if you put them into a transaction queue, so each part of the asynchronous pro process would be, as far as um, app engine is concerned, stateless. That it doesn't say, oh, I need to know that this process is finished before I can run it. If in your code you can say, I've broken this uh, problem down into 13 asynchronous parts, and you keep track of what's completed and what time the results are, you can do that and put it in a transaction queue. But with the transaction queue, there are priorities, but there's not a guarantee when it will finish. Sure. Is that the question or misunderstanding? Is it a transaction queue? Is that just a, is that just a query on the data, or can you do any arbitrary processing? Well, no, you can, anything which is, can be put into a transaction can be put on the transaction queue. And you could be reading, writing, updating. It could be the CUD of CRUD, but no reads because reads don't happen in transactions. So you've got CUD for transactions, and then you have read on the side, which is over 80% of uh, what happens on Bigtable. This part of the first question, Unless you work for Google, and even now it's becoming harder, you can't access Bigtable directly. Let's say there's something called a task queue, which is experimental. Yes. Maybe what I'm talking about. That's what Brett Slatkin, I forget who the other guy was, that's working. And these are things that you can put to the side. He said, listen, do it while I'm doing other stuff, but put it off and then you can track the results. Okay. Yeah, that's. And actually, I think in 1.3.2, they're available. They may actually be in 1.3.1, but I haven't worked. Is there any abstraction for us? Sorry? This should be the... Okay. Is there any abstraction for doing joins? No, they don't exist. That's another thing that I'm going to talk about next week in my Joins don't exist. How can you join something if it's a flat table? You don't. You structure your data differently. That's just it. This is approaching it differently. So like, I want to do what I do on a relational table, and I want to take a hammer and bang it into the hole. You can't do that. Or you possibly can, but why are you using it then? But there are relations that you can build the schema in your code, but you can't do a join. Okay, that was the last question. I will be around afterwards, and if you have any questions, just come up and ask me. Lucky person that gets this. This, this has more information than anything you'll find on the web, and it's extremely well um, written, and it's done for both Python and Java, if there are any Java people. So, this is the picture of the book.